0: Let's look at God's Word. We're going to take uh, a break from Second Peter to acknowledge Holy Week. For this week and next, we'll be in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, so, this morning, I've asked David to uh, to read from Luke.
1: Got your Bible open to chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 44. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is God's word. Thank you.
0: So what can an ancient story about Riding a donkey, a young donkey that had never been ridden on into Jerusalem, with people waving palm branches and laying their cloaks down in front of it. What could that possibly have to do with us in the middle of a worldwide pandemic, quarantined, isolated? What what can that have to say to us? And I, I think it says a lot to us. I think the Bible always speaks into current situations with its own voice. So I want you to be encouraged this morning because God's not surprised, He's not taken aback by what we're going through, neither was Jesus surprised or taken aback by what he was going through. Jesus demonstrates this in-chargeness that he showed. You know, when when he had the foreknowledge to know that a donkey was prepared for him, was ready. It says in a situation that could have been perceived as he's being swept by the crowds in. What's happening to me? And, you know, he, people are shouting and all of a sudden he's uh, put on trial and his, his one of his disciples betrays him. And then he's, you know in the court, unfair court case, and then he's taken to the cross. It could just seem like Jesus is completely out of control, but this situation demonstrates he knew what was coming. He saw in advance, in this foreknowledge, he saw what was coming, and that everyone else who thought they were in charge was really a myth. And for us today, I think if we ever thought we were in charge of this earth. This, we never have been, but goodness, we feel so out of control right here. But but God has always directed events, and He's directing events now. I want to make a couple of comments on this, the things as I've studied this that kind of answered a few questions for me that I had. Then I want to focus for just a few minutes on Jesus and his attitude toward Jerusalem in verse 41 of this chapter of chapter 19. So, just a couple of comments. If, if you're not familiar with this, this uh, this is steeped in imagery that would have been very clear to a first century Jew. That this is speaking of a king. It's speaking of uh, Messiah coming. The Old Testament was full of prophetic words about what would it look like. When Messiah came, it also had pictures of when kings uh, were crowned and coordinated. What did it look like? For us, we don't do this kind of thing, so this feels very strange to us. But let me just let me give you a setup. So let's say, um, you know, Audrey, who's one of our uh, six, seven people in the room here, let's just say she's dropped off, and you're watching a, a movie and, or a, a news report, and she's dropped off in a stretch limo. And she steps out of the vehicle in this incredible dress, all sparkly, and just everybody, whoa, that's amazing! And she steps onto a red carpet, and people, the flashbulbs are going off, and people are like, "Oh, it's Audrey Fletcher!" And you know, we would immediately recognize, right? that she's at a movie premiere or the Oscars or something like that, right? It, in our culture, it would be completely like, oh, well, that's who it is. But you know, you drop her into Nepal somewhere or somebody that never heard of this and they're like, what is going on? That's, that's kind of the way we have it here. If you look at riding on a donkey, we don't associate a donkey, certainly the foal of a donkey is little, young, unridden upon donkey. We don't associate it with kingly riding we don't really even associate it with horses anymore right people ride they sit on top of open limousines you know when they're coming in for a inauguration or something but for them taking things from uh, I'll give you two just two references second kings 138 i mean first kings 138 and second kings 913 are both kings entering and either riding donkeys in or having cloaks dropped in the path, um, people shouting, blowing trumpets, this kind of thing that was associated with what we know as Palm Sunday, this would have been, oh, it's just like when Jehu was coronated, or when Solomon was coronated, this kind of thing. And then we have a very famous passage in Zechariah chapter 9, where the prophet Zechariah is speaking of com- the coming king of Zion, the Messiah. Rejoice greatly, Zechariah 9, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a coal, on the foal of a donkey? And the gos- gospel writers were um, able to point to this as uh, fulfillment of this prophecy. So so for them, reading this, steeped in, this is the king coming, couldn't be any more obvious. This is the king, this is the Messiah. At least that's the claim. Uh, Another piece, Luke, of all the gospel writers, Luke mentions the Mount of Olives. So in verse twice. So in verse 26, he talks about these uh, villages that are on the side of the Mount of Olives. Bethany's still there. Bethpage must have been nearby, but it's not around anymore. He drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount that is called Olivet. That's where he told the disciples to, uh, to go and find the colt or whatever. And then in verse 37, he mentions again, as he was drawing near, already on the way down from the Mount of Olives. Now, if you've been to Jerusalem, you know the mount of olives is sort of down one slope, and then I guess the Kidron Valley, and then it goes up into Jerusalem. So why mention that Mount of Olives? He doesn't mention the other valleys or towns that he must have gone through. Why was this? Well, again, uh, go back to Zechariah. He's picking up this kingship Messiah imagery. So in Zechariah 14, verse 4, Zechariah 14, verse 4, On that day, this is the coming of the Lord. This is the day the king comes. On the day of the Lord, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem. Talks about the way that it's going to be split apart on that day. So again, the prophets are are speaking in this geographical sense. And Luke is picking up on that to say he, he was here. Remember, he's writing 30 or so years after the event. And he's saying, this is the guy. He's the king. He's the Christ. Second thing I want you to look at, verse 37. Luke makes a point of telling us about the praise that was happening as Jesus enters. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives the whole multitude of His disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. Prior to the crowd rejoicing, His disciples led and the crowd followed. They praised Him for all His mighty works that they had seen, saying, and they read the psalm that we read this morning, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, glory in the highest. So they read this messianic psalm, again, pointing to all signs, pointing to kingship, Messiah. Side note, this is something always interested me. As a a big personal property guy with my leanings, it always bugged me that Jesus says, if someone asks you why you're taking your colt, just say, I need it. And take it away. I mean, it doesn't really say. I learned in my study, something I'd never known. You may have known this, but I didn't. There was a principle called angaria. At least that's the way it's spelled. Uh, That's what it looks like when it's spelled. I don't even know how to pronounce it. But angaria was a principle that a dignitary, a public official, or an important person, such as a rabbi, was able to, basically with eminent domain, take for a prescribed period of time, certain things that would be necessary to achieve their function, and that included travel, which in that day would have been animals. So it wouldn't have been unusual for someone to say this important rabbi, a king, a messiah, not that the person who owned the donkey knew who Jesus was, we don't know, but it was interesting that that would have been something that they would have understood. All the time, public officials were confiscating the Roman law, allowed for that, but then you had to return it, and often with recompense, sometimes not. So anyway, I didn't know that, that that was a thing, but there you go, freebie. All right, so second thing I want you to note. First thing is kingship, mess- messianic, pointing to this. Second thing is... So that's who Jesus is. That's the first thing, who He is. Second thing is, what, what are the responses? And there are two that are pretty clear. There's the disciples' response, and that is what we just saw. Blessed is the King who comes. They acknowledge Jesus for who they knew Him to be, the King. And they, they had seen all the mighty works of God for these three years, several years, they'd been walking with him and they acknowledged it to the crowd and the crowd followed them. The Pharisees have a different response, don't they? Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They did not acknowledge him as king. Later, the crowd's going to follow them as the Pharisees turn the crowd against Jesus in a few days and they'll shout, crucify him. But it's the disciples, it is we who are followers of Christ who have the primary responsibility to lift up the praises of God within the cultural sphere. And to not be cowed when the Pharisees of whatever that say Jesus is not king, we need to follow steadfastly the one whom we serve. So what does he want? It's the response Jesus is asking for. And interestingly, Jesus says... Uh, when he's told uh, by the asked by the Pharisees or commanded by them to, to shut his disciples down and to rebuke them and tell them not to lift him up as the messianic king, he says, "What? If we be, they be quiet, the rocks will cry out." Again, it's one of those things in my study. I always wondered, like, would the rocks physically sing? Like, I've never seen a rock. I've seen a rock concert, but I've never seen a rock sing. So, like, would the rocket lips and kind of whatever. Well, there's a principle in Scripture where inanimate objects are said to respond when injustice isn't confronted by the people who should confront it. I'll give you a couple of examples. There are more, but I'll give you a few. Genesis 4, Cain kills Abel, and it says, the blood from his, the ground will cry out injustice had been done, a life had been taken, and he says, you can try to hide it, but the inanimate object, the blood in the ground will actually, the imagery is, it will cry out. Habakkuk 2 verse 11 says that the people were being economically oppressed by the leaders and Habakkuk two eleven says the stones of the house will cry out against you. Even the beams and timbers in the house will cry out about this oppression. James chapter five verse four also speaks of uh, an inanimate object crying out that something is not right and must be made right. James Verse 4 says, Behold, the wages of the laborers that have mowed your fields, which you've kept back by fraud, the wages are crying out against you. So, this idea of something's not right, there's an injustice. What's the injustice happening that the rocks themselves will cry out? Well, it's that the rightful king is being denied his rightful place. All right. so, in those things, we point to the fact Jesus is the hub of God's plan always. All of Scripture speaks of that. The disciples' response, the Pharisees' response, and now we have Jesus' response. He's responded first to the Pharisees telling them, look, if they don't cry out, the rocks will. But the question for them and the question for us now and in the context of our current situation on the earth, what's going to save us? Who's going to save us? How will we be saved? We, we as humans look to want to figure out who's in charge here. We have people standing up who I'm grateful for, for medical professionals trying to give us information, but if we think they'll save us, they would be the first to say They're just giving us information. They're giving us good practices. We want governments to save us. Maybe we want a vaccine to save us. Grateful for all those things, but the Bible teaches that there's a bigger question, which is who will save us from the devastation that sin reeks in our lives and in our world. Jesus walks into Jerusalem, crowned by his disciples, the crowd, tremendous upheaval and chaos in the town as all this is going on. And here's what Jesus says in verse 41, when he had drew near and he saw the city, this is representative, Jerusalem is representative of all Israel, of the people of God, of those who had been called to reflect him. Jesus' response is to weep over it. And he says, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Now, that phrase is really interesting because there's three words. They've put in the make for peace to have it kind of make sense. It literally reads ta pros irene, which is the for peace. So they've put in the things, because ta just means the, the something, the circumstances, the whatever, the stuff. So ta can mean so many things. It's used a thousand times in the, in the New Testament. It's a very broad word. Would that you, even you, had known today, on this day... The for peace, the something for peace. Well, this phrase is used again in Scripture, and it's, it's used in an interesting way. Luke 14, 32, it's a place where these three words are again put together. And let's see how the translators put it together in this context, because I think it's interesting. Luke 14, 32, and he's talking about the counsel of a king, who's going to sit down with another king in war and decide whether or not he should take his 10,000 men and fight against somebody with 20,000 men. And he says, but if you're not going to, well, then while the other king is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation, and ta pros irene, the for peace. And this is the way they've translated it. He sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Let's just stick that translation, that thing, in here a little bit. Just think about this. Would that you had known, even on this day, the terms of peace. And we think of the terms of peace, we think of the cessation of war, and we come up with peace treaty that you give this land, or you give this, or we'll take this, and, and then we'll be at peace together. And I think looking at with that context, you, you don't know the terms for peace. Jesus is weeping because here He is, the the King, the Creator, the Messiah, the rightful One who can set everything right for all the injustice, not simply Rome's injustice over Israel for whom some were looking for freedom, but the greater injustice of any political oppression or any virus, which is that there is injustice because things aren't the way they're supposed to be. That we are out of sorts with each other, with creation, as manifested in our current situation and many, many, many others. It's not the only disease out there. There are wars and there are famines and there are people fighting and there are relationships broken and there are addictions and there are fears and anxieties and this is not the way it's supposed to be. And Jesus comes in and he says, this isn't right And I'm here to set things right. And they say, tell your disciples not to do it. Not to say, you're the king. You're the one to set things right. Because you aren't. And Jesus says, yes, I am. And whatever you are facing and whatever we are facing together, he has set himself and said, I can give you the terms of peace The terms of peace are pretty simple. Lay down your arms. What are the arms? They're the arms of self-righteousness. They're the arms of self-sufficiency. It's the pride to say, I'm not defeated. I'll do it myself. I'm God. I have the answers. I'll decide for myself what's right and wrong. And he says, those aren't the terms of peace. Irene, this word that's used, is a very interesting one because it was used in the sense of when a country was at peace, when there was a goodness over the land, it wasn't simply that there wasn't any war. It meant that the rules of the kingdom were being followed in a way that there was order. This is the word that in the New Testament Greek, shalom, the word that we know from the Old Testament. It's not Irene is not a perfect example. There is no great translation in Greek to shalom, but it's the best they could do, and it, it tries to capture this shalom means health in every way, that that you've let the king be the king. And Irene, they want to say, has that same means the same meaning. William Barclay, who's a known Bible commentator, comments he says that villages often had an official in these days who was called the superintendent of the villages, Irene. He was the keeper of the public peace. In our day, we still speak of a justice of the peace doesn't really mean the same thing. That's not, that person maybe performs weddings or stamps official documents, but that it derives from that same idea of there's somebody who's going to keep the order the way it was intended to be. Not just freedom from war, but for our highest good. And Jesus says the highest good is if you keep the terms of peace. Let's go back and read again what Jesus says as he walks into Jerusalem, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Would you have known the terms of peace? But he says, now they're hidden from your eyes. Why was that? Because they rejected the only arbiter of peace, which is Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. For the days will come upon you, Jesus is now prophesying what will come in about 40 years. The days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. In AD 70... Titus, who would later become one of the emperors of Rome, the leader of the army, comes in, sets up a barricade around Jerusalem, builds up siege walls to the height of the walls, hems the city in. The zealots who were there trying to defend the city can't. And between the two of them, they absolutely destroy Jerusalem, the temple. Everything that Jesus prophesied here comes true 40 years later. What kind of peace does Jesus promise? We're going to close. I want you to look at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to close with this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, Rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and that in everything he might be preeminent. Listen to this. In him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. I know it seems strange in a day when we're facing these unprecedented circumstances, but the peace of God that passes all understanding has been won for us who will acknowledge the terms of the treaty that it is laying down our rights and acknowledging the true king and that he demonstrated this by living the way we should have lived, dying the death we deserved and giving us all that he deserved. As the king of glory, as the son of God, he's exchanged for us taking what he didn't deserve and we did upon himself and giving us what we didn't deserve and he did the right to peace with God. You have the right through Jesus alone to have peace with God. And this is what he said. This is what he was weeping over as he walks into Jerusalem. These people that should have been reflecting him, that should have been acknowledging him, and he knew that they wouldn't, and yet he's going to go and buy that peace for them and for us. As we celebrate this Palm Sunday on these unusual circumstances, distance in our homes, we don't have palms this morning. seemed a little silly to buy five of them for us to wave around in here, but I'm going to encourage you if you have something, palm frond is great, but if you have something green and living that you would wave and lay down, and you want to just acknowledge this morning this terms of the treaty and that you accept them, then take, take a palm frond. Let's hang it on our door today. And let's just remind ourselves, or, or take some piece of greenery and hang it on your door and remind yourself, say, I accept I accept the terms of the treaty because it's all for our good. It's all for our good. I accept your full and free pardon, Lord. I swear my allegiance to you as the king of my life. I admit my defeat, my inability, and your ability through the wonderful cross to buy my salvation. So I don't have to live with the injustice of sin, Lord, but I have a remedy, confessing and receiving forgiveness. Lord, as we close today, let us celebrate your goodness this Holy Week and that we anticipate the victory you win for us over sin and death. It's In Jesus' name we pray, amen.